What's left today, huh? Da -da 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 -da. Welcome back to Out of Trouble, a pattern interrupting podcast. I'm Nicholas Harder. Today's episode, The End of Lies. It is going to be the end of this mini-series of lies. If you're just tuning in, this is the fifth part in a three-part series. Well, like the fourth and a half part, maybe, because the third episode, that's number 19, Real Lies, is uh, the definition of a red herring. In this episode, I'm going to wrap up my breakdown of how our media news environment became so politically polarized, and I'm going to go over the biggest issue facing our journalism industry. We will talk solutions, we will speak with the professor, I'm going to play some more clips for you, and we'll hear from Gabo again a little bit. And I'm finally going to answer Sam's question, which I promise I'll only make you listen to a couple more times. All right, rate, review, subscribe, um, find me on the grams, find my website if you want, leave the podcast a voicemail, there'll be a number in the episode description, especially if this series impacted you in some way, I'd love to hear from you about it. Okay, let's do it, here we go. Hey, Nick. It's your buddy, Sam. Here's my idea for an episode. Uh, <laughs> okay. Mm. Hey, Nick. It's your bud, Sam. Here's my idea for an episode. Why can't we handle coronavirus? What is it about the media that is causing people to be so polarized about it? How come some people believe it's a terrible issue and they're hiding in their homes? How come other people are refusing to wear masks and thinking it's an entire joke? What's going on? I'm just not even going to waste y'all's time today. We're just going to get right into it. Okay, so first, the main takeaway from last episode. When an audience gets too spread out over too many channels and websites, that's when polarization occurs. It's inevitable, according to Professor Jay, that media outlets will use political bias as a brand in order to appeal to a particular niche. And this strategy works more effectively with conservatives since, and this is based on data from the Pew Research Center, conservatives are less trusting of traditional media and more likely to get their news from fewer sources. It is also the case that media outlets skew what stories they cover according to the interests of advertisers. And it seems like there's no question that when you examine the data, you see these are the viewers, the consumers that are valuable to advertisers. They are more liberal. Back in the 80s and 90s and still today, that 18 to 34 year old demographic is the most valuable audience to capture for advertisers. And that demographic tends to be more liberal. And we noticed that at the same time, news stories are becoming more catered to those viewers, consumers, and are becoming slightly more liberal back in the 90s. Back in the 90s, on television yes. at 7 o'clock at night. So, I mean, you have yeah. to be very specific. <laughs> so it is true that the 
conservative perspective that was being defined and championed by Rush Limbaugh in the 80s and 90s, carried on by Fox News in 1996, and now by this entire right-wing media sphere, was responding to a legitimate liberal bias in TV news that continues to exist to this day. The difference is that this liberal bias in the 80s and 90s, it had a much more limited scope than the bias that exists now in both the right wing and liberal media spheres. Um, you heard Professor Jay, James T. Hamilton, director of the journalism program at Stanford, saying how this supposed liberal bias in TV news was really limited in the 80s and 90s, really to just when primetime news was playing. Back in the 90s, on television, at 7 o'clock at night. Now, things are different. There are way more options for viewing. Now that I'm watching Netflix, I'm not reading the newspaper. Outlets are competing over smaller fractions of audience, and so there's no financial incentive anymore for either side to appeal to the other. In fact, the opposite. So now we have liberal outlets who straight up brand themselves with their political bias, like MSNBC, Common Dreams, Democracy Now!, Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Trump continues to contest the results of last Other outlets, like The Washington Post or NPR, they continue to brand themselves as being politically objective, um, but still their audiences are overwhelmingly liberal. So even for them, claiming to be objective is their way to separate their news brand, their news product, from other news products. You got product differentiation. Objectivity appeals to a certain type of typically more liberal audience. Then, obviously, there's right-wing media. Now many on the left are now all but rooting for corona to wreak havoc in the United States. Why? To score cheap, repulsive political points. That's Sean Hannity, political commentator, Fox News. Uh, right-wing media, especially right-wing political commentators, has exploded in the last 30 to 40 years. Fox News, number one cable news channel, runs their opinion political commentators at prime time. Rush Limbaugh, another commentator, gets an audience of 15 to 20 million listeners a week. I think these militant environmentalists, these wackos, have so much in common with the jihad guys. This guy from the New York Times, if he really thinks that humanity is destroying the planet. Mr. Rifkin, why don't you just go kill yourself and, and help the planet by dying? Ha 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 ha. Political commentators, as opposed to reporters, blend hard and soft news. They mix up facts with entertainment, which can make it hard to discern which is which. While conservative commentators are more popular, this happens on both sides. Rachel Maddow from MSNBC is a great example. Here's an ad spot for her show, which again is an opinion news show. News is about stories. It's about finding all the disparate facts and then finding their coherence. Doing this right takes rigor and a devotion to facts that borders on obsessive. So what's the explanation for what happened there? The government was elected. At the end of the day, though, this is about what's true in the world. Good evening. We begin tonight with the story that no one is talking about. This ad deliberately conceals the fact 
that Rachel Maddow's show is not just facts. It's blended thoroughly with her opinions. Stephen Colbert is another great example. He's more of a comedian. Him and Rachel have a similar audience size, about three million every night. This weekend, we received some troubling news. Our president is not a Russian asset. <laughs> now, now, I say troubling. I say troubling news because if Trump is not working with the Russians, then what the hell is wrong with him? <laughs> if they don't, this if is they where don't journalists struggle to cover this topic nice without being accused of being biased themselves. Because while both liberal and conservative media use their bias as their brand and blend entertainment and fact, there are still really important differences between the two. This is where the recap officially ends. Okay, so there's several ways that liberal and conservative media are different. One that stands out to me, I already mentioned about the news consumption habits of their audiences. Conservatives tend to consume fewer news sources, liberals more. But the difference that I want to hone in on, because it's really important to this question that Sam is asking about why there's so much misinformation in our media, Outlets which brand themselves as conservative spend much of their time discrediting the media as a whole in a way which other outlets simply do not. It's no secret that the alt-radical destroy Trump propaganda media, they are completely biased, they're agenda-driven, they're lazy, they're ideological, they're incapable of actually delivering honest news coverage to you, the American people. And we talk about the media, it's never been this abusively biased. Well, it's not even biased. Uh, we're so far beyond biased. Yeah. These people are part of the agenda. I think they, I think they run it. Um, and this is why in my Red Herring episode, Real Lies, I laid all of the blame for this misinformation in our news cycle at the feet of right-wing media, Rush Limbaugh, commentators from Fox News like Hannity. But now I'm trying to have this more enlightened, equal perspective, right? And so I, I had to ask Professor Jay to help me out with this. Like, am I so wrong then to place a lot of the blame for this quote, breakdown of journalistic integrity, as I see it, on the feet of Fox News when in response to this specific liberal media virus at this one time of day, um, they come out with an entire news network where it's more or less 24-7. We have this conservative slant. It's much more intentional. Yeah, I don't use, I wouldn't use the word fault necessarily. Right. Jay's great. We should all aspire to be more like Jay, really. He doesn't lay blame on anyone or say it's anyone's fault. He just sees the economic factors. He just sees cause and effect. More viewing options means smaller audiences, means more polarized news. Got it. But even Jay admits that while polarization in our news may be inevitable, it doesn't mean that certain aspects of it aren't concerning. For example, outlets which brand themselves as conservative, they're serving an audience which expects them to have a different take. So like, if most news outlets are saying that coronavirus is an existential threat, then conservative media has a financial incentive to say that it's not. 
Tonight, I can report the sky is absolutely falling. We are all doomed. The end is near. The apocalypse is imminent, and you're going to all die, all of you, in the next 48 hours, and it's all President Trump's fault. Or at least that's what the media mob and the Democratic Extreme Radical Socialist Party would like you to think. That's the brand they've collectively built since the 80s, a brand which amplifies and plays off of the mistrust conservatives already had for the media and um that mistrust baked into their business that can have dangerous side effects for society and perhaps speaks to the part of sam's question about why we can't handle this virus even jay who's so neutral does express some concern about conservative media when i when i ask him why not blame fox there are two ways that it's damaging. Number one, politicians take advantage of the access and that affects what they say. So I wrote a piece in Washington Monthly about President Nixon and President Trump. President Nixon said many of the things that President Trump says, but he just said them on tape in private in the White House. <laughs> and one of the things that he said was, we need to tear down the media because it's popular with our base and because it'll also make it easier for us to win re-election in 1972 because people won't believe any criticism. And you see that same thing now on Fox. So uh, that's number one, that you, when you're pointing fingers, you also need to think about the politician and what they are saying. Jay mentions at another point in our interview that politicians may not be giving credible fact-based information at the same rate that politicians did in the past. Um, the other thing, you know, in this pandemic world, there was a really interesting study recently looking at belief in how much you could trust the media's coverage of COVID. And in America, we were the only major country that had such a difference in politics on how people view the media and public health. And that's that's dangerous if you believe that masks are important in public health. This made me think of Gabo. I'm not here to say your opinion on this matter is wrong. I'm here to say here's all the facts, you know? My friend from a few episodes ago has been getting into the conspiracy group QAnon. So he's been opened up to in the recent past these more alternative, often more conservative sources of information. And that's what I really appreciate about the group I've been exposed to is that they give me the, the educated conservative side so I can actually make a good decision on where I stand on things. It wasn't until Gabo, who's a liberal by the way, joined this Instagram QAnon chat group that I started to hear him question information about mask wearing and the coronavirus. I think coronavirus is underblown in the States though, right? That's why it's so much worse here. It's like other countries don't have to deal with uh, this debate over whether or not we should wear masks, the debate over whether or not we should just take it seriously in general. This is what Jay was talking about, how studies have shown that it is much less of a debate in other countries. Right? So I've seen plenty of articles that show cloth masks don't actually help us very much. And it's not like Gabo is totally buying into all these things that he reads. I mean, he wears his mask all the time. He follows all appropriate COVID guidelines. But 
like me attempting to report on media polarization objectively, Gabo is just trying to weigh both sides as he sees it. And yes, there's the argument that this is literally media saturation and deep state control guidelines over something that's in the same family as the common cold. Just like it's hard for journalists to report on media polarization without being accused of being biased, it's hard for the average person to know how to give equal weight to both sides. It's hard to understand why both sides just seem to always say the opposite thing from the other. And that's why what Gabo's doing is actually very noble. You know, he's the token liberal in this more conservative QAnon group, and he really deeply is just trying to understand the other side. We're not shown an intelligent representation of the other side. So when I considered myself full liberal, I thought it was impossible that other people could be so dumb as to believe the other side. Mm -hmm. And it was just so clear that I was right, they were wrong, they're fucking up, how could they ignore the science? Sound familiar? Since joining this chat group, the other thing that Gabo's picked up, besides wacky conspiracy theories, is some intelligent counters to common liberal talking points. It's not global warming doesn't exist. It's, you know, solar and wind energy have almost reached their max capacity for their theoretical limit, and we can't expanding global population with those power supplies, you know? In turn, Gabo gives these more conservative folks the researched liberal side. And and a lot of the times, I, I think it is kind of dismissed as like, well, the other side is brainwashed. But that's what the other side thinks about you. If they are really trying to progress this movement, they need to find that common ground. You see, Gabo is trying to build understanding. But to build understanding, we need facts. Once we're talking facts, we can compromise and find what's the best solution. Hard facts don't come from commentators. Facts are warped by political commentary. And if you get your political perspective from these biased sources, you're never going to come to an understanding with the other side. When you're having a logical debate and you're presented an ideological response, it's like there's nowhere to go with that, you know? I feel like we are intentionally being isolated in these bubbles, told that the other side is ridiculous, stupid, and it's not true. The other side has merit. And this is why it's problematic for conservative outlets to be delegitimizing the media as a whole. The alt-radical, destroy-Trump propaganda media, they are completely biased, they're agenda-driven, they're lazy, they're ideological. There's no recognition of merit there. Conservative commentators actively push the idea that the other side is stupid or brainwashed. I do call it abnormality. We're up against psychological disorder abnormality. And it is a politics that intentionally insults the intelligence of people and preys on the stupid and the dumb and the weak. This happens in liberal media as well. It's just more focused on, for example, Trump supporters themselves rather than the media as a whole. The Trump presidency has been four years of him making shocking and hate-filled remarks. I've often wondered, is there any message, anything he could do, anything he could say that would cause him to lose his most loyal supporters? Well, to answer that, I turn to someone else with a long history of making shocking remarks, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. 
In this episode of Stephen Colbert, Stephen literally makes a joke out of trying to understand Trump voters. So right now you'll hear from his correspondent, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, which is actually a cigar-smoking puppet controlled by a ventriloquist. Despite the travesties of his coronavirus response, President Trump's loyal followers have stuck with him through the good times and the end times. One wonders if anything the president says or does could cost him their herd mentality. This dog puppet then goes on to host a fake focus group where they show real Trump supporters fake Trump ads in order to essentially make fun of them. You know, why is President Trump, you know, your guy? I like money. Money. And he knows how to make it. Uh Point being that too many political commentators make no attempt to understand the other side. And I'm going to take a moment to acknowledge here that the quality of commentator does vary. Um, I'm not going to pass judgment on who is better or more informative than who. But in general, commentators have this knee-jerk reaction of taking the opposite stance. Coronavirus was, is, and pretty much has been since mid-late January a really, really big problem. You got one side saying the coronavirus is an existential threat, that we have to lock down, we have to alter the way that we do life. And then the other side saying, Look, bad things happen, and this virus is one of them. But setting off panic around the world is not the answer. And the casual consumer isn't going to know how to weigh both those sides equally. If they don't understand the economic basis for this constant opposition of opinion, they're more likely to mistake commentators for reporters and mistake those commentators' opinions for facts that show an intelligent representation of one side, when really all they're an intelligent representation of is product differentiation. You got product differentiation. Market dynamics. You're far less likely to come to an understanding if you get your political opinions from commentators because their financial incentive is to stay locked in eternal warfare. It's their job to disagree. Cue commentator rap battle. That was trash. I'm tagging in Whoopi. You never call Trump out the way that you play it safe. Like Area 51, scared to alienate your base. Oh, you're making allegations. You really need to stop, though. We're a news outlet that views a daytime talk show. You call yourself a news network? For Fox's sake, it's no meme when I ask. What does the Fox say? Mm. Stephen Colbert telling us who's not presidential? Go back to where your act belongs on Comedy Central. If you want a safer Middle East, you better vote for Donnie. Unlike these rap-battling commentators, it's not a journalist's job to disagree. It's a reporter's job to present the facts. They may not be perfect at it, they may be vulnerable to all kinds of bias, but at least they try. And as we went over last episode, journalism that tries is as truthful and objective as journalism has ever been. The idea that most news is politically biased as 83% of Americans apparently believe, is a misrepresentation of that nuance. It legitimizes the abandonment of journalistic norms established by newspapers in the 18 and 1900s to the benefit of some more politically biased media outlets over others. The problem is not that objective news is impossible. Objective news is possible, and outlets that value objectivity are out there in spades. The problem is that soon, they might not be. 
We're in a world where about half of the reporters have disappeared from newspapers since 2008. So, so many different aspects of state government, of local government, we don't know. If you want to understand how our news became so polarized and filled with misinformation, um, it's not just that commentators are doing so profitably well for themselves. The biggest problem facing our modern journalism industry, and it touches on every other issue, is the funding gap left by the collapse of local print newspapers. The classic industry of journalism is um, struggling to figure out how to make money online. Prior to around 2000, we were in a nice period because you had classified ads. Newspapers, which for the last 100, 150-odd years, have um, successfully financed themselves through subscription costs and advertising. The whole bundle of newspapers allowed you to cross-subsidize the provision of public affairs. In the last 20 years, they've been, I mean, I don't want to say wiped out, but devastated for sure. Since 2005, half the journalists employed by local newspapers have lost their jobs. This is according to data from the Pew Research Center, and it's a commonly known fact amongst folks in the industry. Roughly 20% of newspapers have disappeared entirely. That comes out to more than 2,000 publications that have closed and around 200, 200 counties in the United States that have no local news coverage. They're referred to as news deserts, kind of like food deserts. And of the newspapers that remain, many are like shells of their former selves. Their budgets slashed into oblivion, their remaining reporters forced to cover too many beats, too many topics they may or may not be familiar with. They're like overworked public attorneys now. And it's not like those jobs lost by newspapers are being picked up by other forms of news media like television or online publications. Employment in other types of news media has grown by about 10,000 employees in the last 15 years, right? While the number of journalists employed by newspapers has dropped by almost 35,000. That's a gap of 25,000 journalists lost, a quarter of the industry, so there are simply fewer journalists out there doing original local reporting. I was wondering if you could um, explain just briefly um, how the loss or reduction of uh, local print journalism affects the larger media environment. Like you, I mentioned something about accountability. Sure. Yeah. In my book, I looked at uh, the Raleigh News and Observer, which is a paper that I read when I was at Duke. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Duke... The president of the student body at UNC Chapel Hill was killed, and a Duke graduate student was killed. And it turned wow. out it was by people who were out on parole improperly. So this local newspaper, the Rayleigh News and Observer, did all this research and found that 580 people had been murdered in North Carolina by somebody out on probation or parole in the last eight years. 580 people. Now that fact cost the News and Observer more than $200,000. You couldn't look it up in a press release. They had to go back and look at uh, many court cases, government records, prison records. So this is man hours. This is people going through all the raw data and organizing it and counting yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. So I costed out more than $200,000. And that fact caused po uh, policies to change. 
mm-hmm. 10 million more to reform the system. People were fired, people were hired. And my estimate in the first year of the revised policies, eight fewer people were killed by somebody out on probation or parole. But nobody rolls out of bed in the morning and says, thank you, News and Observer, for reducing the probability that I'm going to be killed today. But when you think about what the media does, it can have these positive spillovers that are really hard to monetize, hard to get a reward for. That's what we mean by a loss of accountability. It means government and business institutions have fewer people overseeing them. And that is, in a sense, the press's job to hold the powerful to account. So that has dealt a devastating blow to the industry and frankly, to our democracy. But it's only part of the equation for why the loss of newspapers has had such an outsized impact. The loss of half our newspaper journalists means that there's less original fact-based reporting for news outlets up the chain. Ever since the emergence of radio and television as new forms of mass media, newspapers remained the backbone of the journalism industry. They provide training for many new journalists, and they provide the -the on-the-ground professional reporting that then often gets picked up by larger outlets, national outlets, TV channels. It goes up the chain. A three-year-long undercover investigation conducted by Newsday revealed disturbing evidence of housing discrimination on Long Island. The project was initiated to see whether real estate agents treated... Original reporting is expensive, right? Which is why larger outlets often rebroadcast or reprint the work of local newspaper journalists. It's cheaper. And it's certainly much cheaper for them to produce news that's more just having a political opinion on something than it is to report an original story, which involves mega amounts of research, doing original interviews, much, much, much more work. Not unlike what I'm doing for this. Ironically, despite what I can fairly call the epic loss to local journalism that's occurred in the last 20 years, there's actually more news available to us than ever before. You're right. There is a lot of information about politics, but it is responding more to this demand for entertainment. Mm -hmm. And, And there's some policy in it, but a lot of it's just expression that is diverting rather than enlightening. I'm going to get back to this comment Jay just made about the demand for entertainment over hard news in a sort of roundabout way. Okay, so you remember the cylinder press that I was talking about last episode? Okay, so when the cylinder press was invented in the 1800s, it unified audiences. Audiences became larger. But the technological advance of the internet, on the other hand, has fractured audiences and made them smaller. That might seem counterintuitive because both expanded the reach of publications, right? However, the cylinder press expanded the reach of papers to maybe their entire city, their entire region. You know, a few went nationwide, even fewer go international. So before the internet, if you're a city newspaper, like say the San Francisco Chronicle, you're not competing with the Boston Globe across the country. That's different now. With the internet, we have access to virtually every publication across the planet. And yet, 
we're arguably less informed here in the United States since we've lost half our local journalists. Ironic, right? Especially at a time when voter turnout is huge and people are so keenly interested in politics. And yet what's being provided to us is, again, less hard news, more entertainment. The heightened level, shall we say, that Americans are engaged with political news, does that actually translate into knowing the names of politicians and what policies they're working on? Or it's more just like drama, the latest Trump headline? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So in some ways, it's a great day to be a political junkie in that you can get a lot more coverage about politics. Mm -hmm. But if you especially think at the local level, there are so many stories that now go untold that once would have been told by a newspaper. Half of newspaper reporters are gone. That's half the amount of stories that are being covered. That's half the amount of politicians being held to account. That's half the cultural events that go unreported. That's half the business scandals that never get broken, and so on, and so on, and so on. Even if you say you can just Google something, you can't Google a story that doesn't exist. According to Pew Research, 62% of journalists in 2008 were employed by newspapers. That number is now more like 40%. Um, That's a huge shift. Historically in the United States, most of our original reporting has been funded by the subscription costs and advertising profits of local newspapers. Now with the internet, people like you and I are much less likely to pay those subscription costs when so much news is available to us for free. It remains to be seen how exactly that gap in funding will be made up, if it will ever be made up, and how we'll be able to employ journalists like we used to only 15 years ago. So um, in general, would you say that we're better informed than we were, you know, around 20 years ago when you wrote this book before the Internet really, you know, exploded, exploded? Or are we are we worse off? Uh, that's an empirical question I don't know the answer to, but I can tell you why I don't know the answer. Sure, Because yeah, you could make the argument that we're in Nirvana period. Um, <laughs> and uh, Joel Waldfogel, a uh, professor, has written a book on uh, digital economics that basically says, let's think about movies. A movie has become much cheaper to make, right? The cost of the cameras has gone down. You no longer have a gatekeeper of a theater chain. Mm -hmm. So in that world, if you think about movies as pulling a ball from an urn, we've got a lot more pulls because it's gotten cheaper to do. Right. So that's a great world to be in. We don't really have that in public affairs reporting because the cost of finding out the truth hasn't really gone down that much. What Professor Jay is saying, and this is really important, is that the ways in which technology has made it easier for anyone to, say, start a podcast or run their own online publication or create their own YouTube television set. Those advances in technology haven't translated yet into making original reporting easier, into making facts cheaper to discover. But it's Professor Jay's hope and his work that they someday will. So on the one hand, 
you could say it's fairly depressing for reporters. And yet on the other hand, there's this field called computational journalism, which I view as uh, stories by, through, and about algorithms. <laughs> yep, that's right. Algorithms can make original reporting cheaper to produce. Facts are expensive, but there is a potential to say, what could five reporters do in a city if they were as teched up as the platforms are? So basically what you're saying is like the same tools that have made social media quite powerful and, and the technological tools that have made um, the government more powerful on, on, in the online space, journalists should also be using. Yes, those, yeah. but that's costly. And so it has to come from somebody. It has to come from philanthropists or people who own media outlets or the government. The government can support R&D in this area. <clears throat> this is something that gets Professor Jay really excited because... Funding research into developing these tools for journalists is something that we can publicly fund. It's apolitical. It's not the government interfering or getting mixed up with the press. That's what I love about it. It's content neutral and platform agnostic. You're not picking winners and losers uh, in parties or even on media products. It's, it's an input into the process. I know that the government funds great software for uh, surveillance and to analyze transactions relating to national defense. But what isn't often acknowledged is that journalists create public goods that are also undersupplied, like national defense is undersupplied, and they need the tools to watch the government. So right now it's pretty asymmetric. But there are already outlets that are using algorithms to make news. Reuters and Bloomberg and the New York Times and the Washington Post, they have... Uh, computational journalists. And I am hopeful that you're starting to see some of that technology migrate into uh, the people who are trying to watch the watchers, people who are trying to hold the government accountable. While algorithms can't hold the government accountable on their own yet, um, they can't do everything a human journalist can do, right? Like interview someone. They can do a surprising amount, though. Like, automatically publish a story when an earthquake hits. They can do reports on finances, like the daily stock market indicators, or sports scores and recaps. So they can create original reporting around stories that are already formulaic somehow, or based on statistics and numerical figures. And that allows journalists to give some of the grunt work to these algorithms so they can work on the more difficult stories. Algorithms also help journalists create insights from data by sorting it more effectively. Professor Jay's last book, Democracy's Detective, The Economics of Investigative Journalism, is all about this. He gave me an example of how algorithms are used by journalists by telling me about this team of reporters who were finalists for a Pulitzer Prize. What they did was they uh, scraped the medical proceedings of all 50 states' medical societies, and they found about 100,000 discipline cases. Uh, they couldn't read all those, but then they did an algorithm based on keywords. Mm -hmm. What words show up that indicate sexual abuse harassment? And so what they did was they cut that 100,000 down to 6,000. Then they were able to read 6,000 uh, cases and then write a Pulitzer finalist series on that. So that makes me hopeful. It's important we talk about hope after all that doom and gloom, legitimate doom and gloom. <laughs> 
Uh, it's things like this that make Professor Jay hopeful. He thinks that funding for journalism will most likely move into the nonprofit space. So nonprofit companies are starting to fill at least some of the funding gap left by local papers. And we're seeing a shift away from advertising towards subscription and the nonprofit model. Those two things. And so and that, I think they're... that gives you hope. Yep. That gives me hope. Yeah. Uh, before I move to finally finish this series and answer once and for all Sam's question about how our media got so polarized and filled with misinformation, it would be remiss of me not to mention that, of course, there are already major concerns with the use of algorithms in news. Big example, this guy Brian Timponi. He and his company, Locality Labs, have used algorithms in the last two years to make more than 1,300 pseudo-local news sites. So these are websites that mimic legitimate local papers. According to a recent investigation by the New York Times, the sites dispense with the unbiased coverage that's the hallmark of mainstream journalism. Instead, they feature stories orchestrated by conservative operatives and, in some cases, are paid for by corporate clients attempting to gain publicity for a particular issue. Like I said, this is only in the last couple of years that this has happened. Back in 2019, when Columbia University's Tau Center first started tracking this, there were only 450 of these websites. Now there's well over a thousand. Um, I couldn't find any good news clips for this, but I did find some articles like this one from the Sacramento Bee that use a piece of software to read themselves, and I thought it was fitting. The Standard is one of four purporting to cover the Sacramento region, out of a total of 79 sites in California operated by Chicago-based Metric Media LLC and its affiliates. Its affiliates would include Brian Timponi and Locality Labs. He developed this software for them. Other sites include the San Francisco Sun, Northern California Record, and LA Harbor News. In the San Joaquin Valley, the brands include the Fresno Leader, Merced Times, not to be confused with the Merced County Times, SLO Reporter. About 90% of the articles on these sites are algorithmically generated, just to fill space, basically, and then 10% will be these pay-for-play articles. Mike Madrid, a Sacramento-based political strategist who's working with the Lincoln Project, said the websites are clearly trying to drum up more support for conservative candidates and causes by using a platform that looks like a traditional news source. Candidates will pay for the coverage, and the sites offer an air of legitimacy, Madrid said. At the same time, the audience is receptive. There's a whole world out there in conservative circles that don't follow the mainstream media, they're averse to it. But they're very open to the idea of whatever their own bubble is telling them, Madrid said. The point isn't for the websites themselves to become popular. The point is to make the articles more shareable on social media. People pay to have articles published on these sites about themselves, their political opponents, or some issue that they care about. And then they'll share that article that they paid to have made on social media, and it looks legit. Uh, this, by the way, is super questionably legal. Traditional news outlets do not accept payment in exchange for coverage, and the Federal Trade Commission requires paid advertising that looks like editorial content be clearly labeled as advertising. Many clients have pitched stories with instructions on what reporters should write, whom they should talk to and what they should ask, the New York Times reported. Over 17 days in July, these clients ordered up around 200 articles, company records show. This network of probably now well over 1,300 sites is a conservative propaganda machine. 
Some of the news sites have only the automated content, but they have quickly sprung to life when local news has arisen, the Times reported. That happened in August when protests erupted in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after the police shot an unarmed black man. Yeah, one of the articles from these sites that did really well got shared like 22,000 times on Facebook and reached an estimated 3 million people was a piece slandering one of the protesters who was shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, a self-proclaimed militiaman in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's like total clickbait for conservatives, right? So this works because it's profitable. I went on one of these sites, supposedly representing Oakland, uh, a city right near me, and it was creepy. I mean, it looks exactly like a typical news site until you go deeper into the articles and see that they're mostly super banal, all about numbers and stats and stuff. I'll leave a link to the register of all these websites in the episode description. If you want, you can go check it out. I'm sure there's a fake publication representing a locality near you. Ada Reporter, Boise City Wire, CDA Reporter, Central Idaho Times, East Idaho Times, Gems. I gotta Wire, say, Magic Valley Times. I do not North like Idaho the ominous symmetry between the decline of local papers and the rise of these essentially fake local news sites. The sites tout themselves as local news providers that offer objective, data-driven information without political bias. The sites present a challenge for readers navigating a digital media environment that has unlimited space for publishing stories that are hard to distinguish as journalism, advocacy, or political messaging. So if we're looking to have a healthier news environment, there are some pretty common sense things we could do regulation-wise to improve it. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, used to more actively regulate the media, and we still do have some rules that affect our press. It's not like a radical idea or anything, is my point. It would be nice, for example, if it was easier to see how a given publication gets its funding. It should be easier for the average person to understand the intent behind the news they're reading or watching or listening to. That's where a lot of the concern about bias comes from, right? What's the motivation behind this news? It should definitely not be allowed to pay to have an article put in a publication without that being made obvious. I got these ideas from Jay, by the way. They are not my own. He's taught me a lot, and I did email him about Brian Timpone and his pseudo-local news sites. Um, you know, I figured that probably wasn't what Jay had in mind when he imagined how algorithms could improve news. And he responded that he thinks of algorithms as tools, similar to any tool of journalism that can be both used and misused. It was a very Jay answer. I appreciated it. Content neutral and platform agnostic. You're not picking winners and losers. It's an input into the process. Professor Jay's ultimate goal is to make it cheaper to produce original reporting and fact-based news. Do the solutions that you lay out in your book to furnish hard news for folks, create a more informed populace, can those also work to sort of bring us back to the point where we share at least a similar set of facts or exist in some kind of semi-shared reality again? Yeah, I, yeah. Do, I do believe that. I, I definitely do. If you lower the cost of discovering stories, and that's a supply side. On the demand side, if you tell stories in a more personalized or engaging way, not personalized as in left-right, but as in I like text or I like video, and also if you knew what I knew, if you knew how much I knew about a particular issue, and you could tell me 
in a way that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. That's a big challenge. So, because I think there's still a lot of innovation that can happen in story discovery and storytelling, that does make me optimistic. All right, so now. It is time for my all-time final answer to Sam's question. Why can't we handle coronavirus? What is it about the media that is causing people to be so polarized about it? Our news is polarized because with the addition of more channels and websites, we were always going to get this spread from left to right. We're living in a fractured media environment. There's just more options now. How come some people believe it's a terrible issue and they're hiding in their homes? How come other people are refusing to wear masks and thinking it's an entire joke? Our news is filled with misinformation because at the same time that we have more options, original reporting has declined sharply with the loss of local papers. Unfortunately, fake and opinion news is cheaper to make than original reporting and just as easy to share. Entertainment ends up getting mixed up with facts and fake and commentary news populate many of our supposed options. Why can't we handle coronavirus? What's going on? And we can't handle this pandemic because people don't have enough variation in their news diets. They don't take in other perspectives. And as much as I don't wanna blame right-wing media for that, it's hard not to when their business model is dependent on discrediting traditional media. Statistics do show that liberals also don't trust conservative outlets, and I suspect that liberals too often dismiss news from conservative outlets out of hand without really considering it, but, It can't be ignored that conservatives just don't trust or consume as many news sources as liberals. And a healthy media diet involves varied sources of information. So yes, as Gabo pointed out three episodes ago, traditional media has made mistakes, continues to make mistakes. And that's why we should all continue to question and be critical of our press, absolutely. But the idea that most media is politically biased and can't be trusted, is a marketing strategy that benefits right-wing media and political commentators at the expense of trust in our media institutions as a whole. Objective, unbiased news exists, depending on how you define it. And it's not healthy for our democracy when large swaths of people think otherwise. That's why we don't have a shared reality and can't agree on something as basic as wearing a mask. People don't trust the news. If you want our journalism industry to thrive, fund your local paper while you still can. We need to pay for the type of journalism we want. It doesn't have to be your local paper, but if you believe original fact-based reporting is important, find some way to support it. I believe it, and I've done a hell of a lot more research than you. But don't get me wrong, I don't think our individual contributions are going to solve this problem of the journalism funding gap. It doesn't make sense to subscribe to one newspaper anymore. I guess we could all pick one. I mean, the local outlet, if you still have one, is a good way to go. I like NPR, but my donating to NPR is not going to solve this problem either. We need more on-the-ground original reporting to make up for what we've already lost. And so I do wish that there was a better way to pay. And by the way, 
I'm not going to tell you not to support a partisan outlet. I mean, I personally prefer news that tries to be politically objective, but even politically biased news can contain truth and be informative. You can't dismiss something out of hand just because it comes from a particular source or you disagree with it. The problem isn't that partisan outlets exist. In our fractured media environment, that's inevitable that they're going to exist. Um, the problem is when it's not clearly labeled what is reporting and what is commentary. Like I said last episode, we confuse entertainment for information all the time. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, Rachel Maddow, they are the most politically biased type of news source. If you get your news mostly from one of their shows, you will have a correspondingly skewed view of the world. If you want to know why it feels like people on the right and the left are living in separate realities these days, how come some people believe it's a terrible issue and they're hiding in their homes? How come other people are refusing to wear masks and thinking it's an entire joke? That could be an important part. It's funny, there's this thing that folks on both sides of the political equation do where they're like, how could the other side possibly do that thing, believe that notion, vote for that person? <laughs> I mean, it's all out there, right? Like, if you really want to know, it's in the news. You can go get it. The news is definitely not a perfect reflection of how people think, but you'll get the gist. So I'm calling you out because if you're a liberal who never sees conservative media, if you're a conservative who never looks for the merit and the opposite perspective, then you are just as guilty of failing to understand the other side as someone who only gets their news from a Rush Limbaugh or a Stephen Colbert. And if you feel powerless right now, like nothing you can do will ever make any kind of meaningful change, well, don't. Knowledge is power. Now go share this with someone. Uh, you know, I'm constantly questioning myself to ask, you know, I see, uh, I'm not super impressed by the level of conversation happening on the internet around me. And I find myself constantly questioning myself to be like, am I an idiot too, you know? And I feel like uh, I did that with this remaking the third episode. And I feel like your book made me a little bit less of an idiot. So, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for reading so closely yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Okay. All right. All right. Take well, care. Thank you. You too, Jay. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope um, you found it informative. If it impacted you in some significant way, um, leave me a voicemail or send me an email. The phone number for the podcast is... 415-841-3104. And you can find me on social media at Out of Trouble Nick, N-I-K. I'd love to hear from you. I'll leave both of those resources in the episode description, as well as links to my sources and Jay's book that I use to make these episodes. You know, I never mind a rate or review or a follow either. All right, y'all. I will probably not be back next week as I have surpassed the upload limit on my podcast hosting website, which is fine. I should probably take a break anyway. So happy Thanksgiving, y'all. This is Nicholas Harder. Without a trouble, I'm out.